Welcome to the Transparency Project Radio on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Hi, Delilah. Hey, Denny, and hey, everyone out there. Hope, uh, hope this is a bright and shiny day for all. Um, a little bit about the Inside Lens Network. This this network has been around since you you started it, what, in 2004? And so obviously yeah. there is a collection of almost 700 podcasts to listen to on a variety of topics, most of them surrounding um crime issues, victim issues, and things like that. But some of the podcasts that we highlight, uh, we highlight criminal cases, some of which are still open investigations like the New Bedford Highway serial killer we'll be talking about today. But our intent is to allow families to present information for consideration. Our podcast and hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests are allowed to present their own information. And while we may suggest some resources and assistance, we're not liable for their subsequent actions. And as of right now, Denny, our guest has not called in. so would you like to explain a little bit about this case? Certainly. 35-year-old Debbie DeMello was last seen in New Bedford, Massachusetts on July 11, 1988. Her remains, which were concealed by tree branches, were discovered on November 8th of that year by a highway crew working along Route 195 near the eastbound ramp in Dartmouth. Her remains were positively identified in December. Debbie had walked away from her prison work release program in Rhode Island on June 18th, following a prostitution conviction. The authorities believe she was a victim of a serial murderer dubbed the New New Bedford Highway Killer. Including Debbie, he is believed to be responsible for the confirmed deaths of nine women with two additional women missing who may have been victims as well. And we're awaiting Debbie's brother, Wayne Perry, uh, to join us to talk about his sister's murder and the hunt for the killer. Well, Denny, this is a, now, this is a case I'm not real familiar with. Are you familiar with it? I mean, it's a 35-year-old case, right? Or I'm sorry. Well, almost that. Almost that. Yes. It's like... Uh, 30 years old, is it being worked like a cold case, do you know? That's my understanding, but I I was hoping Wayne, uh, you know, uh, would be able to fill us in in a lot more detail because I think he's obviously been following this since uh, 1988. So I'm sure he has a lot more information as to how active the case is, who's working it, and that type of thing. now, apparently, this guy, from what I could find out, I'm, I'm assuming it's a guy, uh, preyed on on women who were known prostitutes or drug abusers, that type of thing. And 
the killing stopped, though. Uh, the killing stopped, I believe, uh, around late 1989 or so. Uh, and I don't know what happened to the killer, whether he moved somewhere else, whether he's died. You know, I don't know what happened there. And again, I was hoping Wayne would have some information for us on that. Uh, is that your understanding, D, of, uh, of of this murder spree, if you will, that it, it was a relatively short time frame? It is. I, like I say, I'm not real familiar with the case. This is really the first time I had heard of it when we scheduled this show. And, um, you know, but it's, it's a very short period of time between, you know, like within a year that there's nine known victims. Is that correct? Nine? Um, and then for him yeah, to nine, nine, stop. Yeah, nine, nine confirmed and two possibles. Two missing persons uh, that that uh, you know might bring the uh, total up to eleven. Anyway, right? uh, It's uh, I I don't know what happened to Wayne. We'll give him a couple more minutes. I did want to mention something uh, about a, a future show, and that is the Lovers Lane murders. And anybody not familiar with that, you can Google it. Uh, it took place in 1990 in Houston, Texas. And it was a double double homicide. And it's still, uh, you know, it's a cold case. It's got the 28th anniversary of that, of those two murders is coming up in August. And um, we, unless there's some change in the, status of the case for the police uh, such as an arrest or some reason not to uh, to do the show we plan to uh, to do it in august and it's uh it's it's really a fascinating case uh and i strongly recommend anybody who's interested in doing a little detective work if you google that and uh and, and get some of the information about what's was done and what's been found and what hasn't been found and all that kind of thing. I think it might be um, be something you'd be interested in. Yeah, that's that. You've interviewed these uh, people on the uh, on this Lovers Lane murders before, right? Years ago. October nineteenth of two thousand ten. In fact, we did a. Uh, Ooh. The show on that we we were doing uh, multiple cases uh, mm-hmm. each week, and this uh, Lovers Lane murders was the first segment that we did that day, and it happened that uh, if you recall the, the and I had forgotten about this until I replayed the podcast. Uh, Susan was in Oklahoma that night. Remember all the stuff that was going on in Oklahoma about the uh, the medical yeah. examiners and all that. Well, right. Susan was there. So uh, uh, Donna Pendergast, the uh, deputy attorney general in, in Michigan, she filled in for her. And we had uh, Garland Atkinson on. He was the father of the uh, male half of the murders. And uh, and two family members from uh, the girls' family. And it was a very in- interesting show. And someone 
sent a message. We had the chat room activated that they had information about this case. And we ended up uh, contacting this uh, this individual and had uh, some got some very good information about the uh, a possible suspect and uh, you know then there was some uh, were some issues about how the police handled the tip and uh, you know a whole bunch of stuff so it, it's again a very interesting case and you can play uh, you can play that uh, back the broadcast back uh, again it was October nineteenth of 2010. uh, Well, you know, Denny, that just goes to show you the power of the podcast. (laughs) It, uh, you know, this was eight years ago you played that. I mean, you interviewed them, and I'm sure there's there's plenty of updates to give our listeners when we do air that interview in August, but to to put the information out there and get tips back, it is just very rewarding um, we know that people take this information and are actually doing something with it. And, and hopefully, you know, by passing on those tips, I mean, obviously we would send them directly to the investigating agency in charge. So we don't deal with them, but um, at least they have a new lead or a new tip to, to move forward on and, and possibly solve the case. So it's really, you know, there is a lot of power in what we do here. And the the beauty, if if that's an accurate description, the beauty of uh, this blog talk radio is that these podcasts are uh, in the archives virtually forever, and the people listen to them. Obviously, you get the bulk of the listens over the first couple of weeks, but uh, they're out there. And uh, you know, cold cases. When you look at it in the one perspective, you say, well. It's nice to solve them quickly. Never, don't let them get cold, and the sooner the better. But when a case does turn cold, there are possibly some advantages uh, in solving it as, as more time goes by. In this sense, one thing you have technology advancements. You, they can do stuff with DNA now that uh, not, nobody ever would have thought of years ago. And you also have... Uh, relationships between people change. So someone who was buddies with a suspect or what do they call them, a person of interest, uh, and and didn't come forward or wasn't interviewed or whatever at the time of the crime, uh, later on there may be a falling out or something or a guilt trip, and that person will then come forward and, and be willing to... Uh, to tell what they know and to cooperate. So uh, I I would like to see all the cases solved, you know, in the first 24 hours. But uh, those that do go cold, uh, there is some, there is a bright light, if you will, at the end of the tunnel in the technology aspect and the possibility that uh, relationships would change and that someone who wouldn't talk at the outset might be might be willing to come forward as time goes by. Uh, what do you think about that? No, I totally agree with you, and I think it's it just goes to show the fact that keeping your case out there, you know, continue to talk about it, continue to publicize it on social media, 
Um, you never know where that tip's going to come from. You never know. And just like, I mean, I, I think the best example of that, of course, is Phyllis Cook with, with her um, brother and, and father's murders. And she's been pushing this for 50 years. And, you know, hopefully there's going to be a break come come for her soon but it's very important you have to self-advocate you know for anyone out there who's listening who may be a surviving victim um you you have to continue to self-advocate you can't always just trust in the system although i wish i wish we could say that but sometimes the system isn't always working in your favor so you know question 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 and then question again but keep the information out there. Um, you know, that's why we're here. That's why we do this is so that we can help you along with that. So it's very important that if you do come to us and we do highlight your case, make sure that you pass it as far as you can. Share it on all of your social media with all your contacts. Email it so that you know, somebody listening, somebody knows something. We just don't know who that somebody is. Exactly. And the, the families of the, uh, of the victims, uh, the, the ones who feel that something was wrong, perhaps with the investigation. Um, and today, uh, I, I fear that we're hearing more and more about rulings of suicide where there was little to no investigation done. And, uh, you know, the reason for that, I don't know. Is it all legitimate? To, you know, can a, an officer or detective arrive on the scene and in 20 minutes know for sure what happened and tell the uh, medical examiner coroner is definitely a suicide? Um or does there need to be more investigation done uh, in some of these cases to to make sure that it was not a homicide? In fact, the the death investigation should be treated as a homicide until some other uh, cause or manner of death is determined. So there are a lot of families out there with stories to tell and looking for outlets uh, of which we are one, where they can, as you say, get the story out there, keep it out there. And if I may, we are starting on the Transparency Project a book, uh, an anthology, where the families of the victims can tell their stories. And uh, we have a working title for the book of Survivors, the Forgotten Victims of Murder and Suspicious Death. And these uh, these survivors are having a chance to tell their stories, what it was like from the time of the uh, notification of, of the death of their loved one through current. Uh, in most cases, that, that results, uh, the, the current status is that it's, and it's still an unsolved case and that the families, the survivors are fighting the system trying to get information as to what the investigation consisted of, what was done and it's uh, 
it, it's an ongoing battle. Uh, and I really give credit to those people who refuse to give up. As you say, Phyllis Cook's a classic example of the deaths going of her brother going back 50-some years. And for these people to stick with it and not let the system beat them down, not let the... Uh, the refusal of the police to tell them anything, citing open case, uh, we can't talk to you. Um, and in fact, the mission statement of the Transparency Project is to help families get records and, and try to make sure that the agency they're dealing with uh, had a legitimate reason to deny access to uh, to records. So. It's quite a thing, and I, I'm really excited about this this book, uh, getting the stories out there, and, and it's going to focus more on the aspect of fighting the system and what it's like trying to trying to access information, uh, more so than solving the crime. Solving the crime, if if that happens, if somebody comes forward and and has information, that's great. But most people don't realize what happens to the family in the aftermath of one of these uh, murder or suspicious death cases. Uh, you hear about the victim a little bit, uh, unless it's a celebrity or some bizarre circumstances. It tends to be more of a local story and fades fairly quickly. Uh, you might hear something if there's an arrest or a trial. But the the survivors don't get much attention, and I don't think anybody or very few people, unless they've experienced it firsthand, really know what it's like and, and what they have to go through. So, that the focus of this uh, this book and the stories in the book will be more on the on the aftermath aspect than they will in actually uh, looking to solve the crime. Like I say, if we if that if the book generates leads that's and i hope it does but uh these people deserve to have their stories told and let other people know what they are going through because again the most these stories won't have an end they're they're ongoing the fight is ongoing uh, what are your thoughts on that d well i'm glad you brought it up i really am because that's what i was going to ask you to Discuss next, which you beat me to the punch on the last. <laughs> but um, I agree with you. I think it is important for these people on many, many different levels to be able to to write down their story, to actually write it all out in one place and have it collected like you're doing. Um, I think it's another important resource, really, for for people who who may be what we call new victims of crime, someone who hasn't even gone through the process yet, you know, it's it's something that they could use as a resource to say, well, if this happened here, maybe we should do this. And, you know, hopefully we can show people how to prevent um, going through all of what, what your writers have, have gone through and different ways and different resources available to them to be able to move forward their case so they don't have a long-term 
loss, I mean, it's a forever loss, but to have to buck the system every step of the way, every single day, it, it just, you know, it's, it's very sad to talk to everyone who's gone through something like this. And then to know that it's not going to end, even when you, you know, when you catch the killer, get him in jail, then you've got parole hearings. I mean, so unfortunately they are the ones who get the life sentence. And it, it just seems totally unfair to me that the system makes it so very difficult and so, um, oh, I can't think of the word, unaccommodating maybe or inaccessible um, to the, the victims of these crimes and the survivors of these crimes. It's, it shouldn't be that way. But, you know, I, I know we respect everyone's rights, but it seems to me that crime victims' rights have been um, put into the back seat for, for way too long now. When is, your, when is your launch date, or do you have one yet? Well, we have a deadline for submission of the first draft of, of the stories of August 17th. Uh, depending on what editing has to be done, how much, and uh, so forth. Uh, I'm hoping to have the uh, manuscript in the hands of the publisher or a publisher uh, before the end of the year. Now, whether the book itself can be out, you know, I don't. It would depend on the schedule of the publisher. But uh, if we if we can get it or if I can get it to the publisher by November or so, I think that's a realistic uh, realistic date, target date. And then uh, I don't see much reason why we couldn't have it out uh, at least by early 2019. Well, I think a lot of people are, are definitely looking forward to this project that you've presented to them. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to be an easy, an easy thing for any of them to do. It's very, it's very difficult to have to relive all of the details and, you know, all that they've gone through. But on another level, it's very cathartic in some ways to be able to get it all down on paper or, you know, in book form. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching how this progresses. Well, yeah, and I'm I'm very excited uh, as well. I like I said, I think it's a, a worthwhile project, and I I fear though that what is going to have to happen is it's going to be a fifty state effort. If it was just a federal situation where we could go to the feds and have a law passed or amended or that type of thing. It wouldn't be bad, but we're going to have to deal with all 50 states uh, one by one and and try to get them to enact legislation. I I think that's going to have to be the route. And uh, Larry Young, who has been on our broadcast in the past, who helped get Molly's Law, uh, it's called Molly's Law after his daughter, who who was deceased, as a good starting point, if we can get some states to enact similar legislation, and, and for people not familiar with Molly's Law, it does 
several things, one of which is it extends the statute of limitations to file a wrongful death lawsuit from two years to five years in certain situations with violent deaths or murders and, and, and not, not every death, but in, in, uh, if those circumstances exist. And it would give a chance for people then if, if they have a suspect in mind or who they believed is the, uh, was responsible for the death, um, it gives them an opportunity to depose these people under oath. And, uh, and get information that perhaps the police couldn't or didn't get. So that's important. It also requires that for the Freedom of Information Act requests, and it may not be called FOIA in each state. Some states have sunshine laws or uh, open disclosure, that type of thing. So the, the, the title of the law may be different. Basically, it's the release of records. It's access to records. And uh, in Illinois now, if a FOIA request is denied, and let's say by a police agency, with the uh, it's an open case exemption. Well, that might be, but now the onus in Illinois is on the agency declining to comply with the FOIA request, not only to prove the case is active, is open. Excuse me, not only to say the case is open, but that it is active. They have to show they're actually working it, and it's not sitting on a shelf someplace collecting dust. And if uh, if a FOIA request is denied and the requester appeals to the Attorney General, they will evaluate the uh, the information that's being withheld, and if it doesn't meet the new standard of open and active, they will then order the uh, release of the information. So uh, that is a great thing to have someone, uh, a neutral party, if you will, come in and take a look at uh, at this information that's being withheld and then determine whether it is or isn't uh, being declined for good cause. And that's very important. And I spoke with Larry uh, a week or so ago, and he said that probably the most important part of the law that people are missing, and, and I had missed it, is that if if someone is arrested and charged with with the death and the family now has one year after the end of the trial, and it doesn't matter what the verdict is, whether it's guilty or not guilty. The family has a year after the after that verdict comes down to file a wrongful death suit. So, in other words, if if by the time you get an arrest and trial, four or five years have gone by since the murder, your your rights are protected because you still have a year after that trial concludes. So you could be filing a wrongful death suit eight or ten years after the after the death, uh, which I hadn't realized was in there. And it's I agree with Larry. It's it may be the most important part of the whole thing, or certainly an important part. Uh, it, it gives the family some protection to to take action 
for actually years down the road if there's a trial involved. So I'm, uh, I would like to say, and in fact, I have contacted uh, an assemblywoman here in New York State and submitted the information about Molly's Law. I, I contacted her office. I didn't speak with her personally, but I spoke with one of her aides, and uh, I'm going to do a follow-up call to them in a week or so, but they the uh, – person I spoke with said she thought her the assemblywoman may be look at this favorably so I'm hoping that happens because we're going to have to do this like I say in every state if if people want action uh, and want things to get done that probably is the way we're going to have to go and it's uh, it's an uphill battle in, in in a lot of regards but it's something that really has to be done Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, every every effort that can be made to push victims' rights to the forefront is is definitely a worthwhile effort, um, whether it be legislation or whether it just be a change in policies. I think a lot of times even local jurisdictions have policies that are not favorable to victims at all. And, um, you know, I know many of the people that we've talked to have done and, and it's interesting to me how many victims like this find the, the, the courage and the bravery to step out of their own situation and make these changes and see that it happens for those who are coming behind them so that other people don't have to go through some of the same painful processes that they did. Um, and I commend each and every one of them that have been able to do that. And there are tons and tons of them across the country. So, you know, if we can be just a little impetus for this, then it's all worth it, definitely. Yeah, and, you know, this two-year, this uh, wrongful death statute in New York is is also a two-year, currently a two-year limitation. And I've talked to many people not necessarily New York, some are, some are other states, but that by the time they realize there may be or may have been a problem with the investigation of the death and that a wrongful death suit, you know, may have provided them with the, with the tool to, to try to get the witnesses deposed and suspects deposed they don't realize that in some cases until the two years has passed. They don't. They think the investigation is going great. They, you know, they're they're trying to overcome the loss mentally and, and deal with the grief. And uh, and that two years goes by, you know, in a heartbeat almost. And they suddenly say, "Oh, geez, my, you know, I I could have done this, and and I didn't do it in time." That's why I think uh, the extension of that time period is. Uh, it's critical to, to give people. I remember the O.J. Simpson case, and uh, he, you know, he, he had the acquittal in the criminal uh, trial. But the uh, the Goldmans there, you know, they filed the wrongful death suit, and he was found responsible. Uh, so, not that they ever got any money out of him. Uh, he hid that uh, successfully. But uh, the point was, at least uh, there was some resolution. Uh, 
and and perhaps if 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 the criminal trial was an example of, of injustice it uh, the civil trial may have corrected that to, to some degree so well, we uh, learned a lot from the it, OJ case that's for sure <laughs> i think we all oh, all sure. caught the the true crime fever with that trial i think it was really an impetus for um ramping up the interest of a lot of people across the country um i think our guest may be on hold um okay hold on one second hi is this wayne no hi this is phyllis and i don't mind holding i mean if wayne's calling in i was just listening and have a few questions but nothing important so if you want to check and see if wayne's online i would love to hear wayne's information and input into the story okay um what were your questions phyllis we can we can answer okay um as denny said i'm phyllis cook and i have the one was murdered in mississippi where my father and my brother have been you know my brother was murdered 50 years ago and it took me 35 years to hear the words that, yes, my brother was murdered rather than suicide. And for those 35 years, I call law enforcement weekly, monthly, yearly, only to be told, hold on and wait, or we're looking into it, or someone will get back. My story is a lot different from just a plain homicide or missing murdered type. Uh, Denny's fully aware of you know the issues that I've had, but even up until now, when I did finally... Uh, Request the FOIA information, Freedom of Information. I was given that after three tries. I finally got that. And everything that I had told as far as people that were involved, witnesses and stuff, they were reiterated into that FOIA information. I have called the Attorney General's Office, the FBI, the coroner that finally confirmed that everything that I was telling had to be true because my father would not have known that information. I would not have known the information that I was sharing with him unless my dad or I, one, had been in that house back in 1987 whenever the Sherry's was murdered. He said that was stuff that he had never even put in his report. Even though I have uh, told this information to the Attorney General, the FBI, the police department, no one will still investigate this case. I'm at a standstill as to where to go now. Now, I do have the cold case investigative research, Cheryl McCollum. They are helping and working on this, and I feel that maybe, you know, working with Denny, they will finally get somewhere. But, you know, when you're put off all these years, the statute of limitation runs out. The police knows the statute of limitation is going to pass, and you cannot do anything and it gets to the point to where, you know, it's not a fact of suing someone, it's of getting answers. And even though now he's, they came back and reiterated all of the witnesses, a lot of those witnesses are still alive, even though they're in their 70s, they're alive walking the streets and have all of this crucial information. I've had people come forward on Facebook, witnesses, that say, yes, the people that you're talking about are alive. Yes, they were involved. Yes, I know that they were Dixie Mafia members, but I still cannot get anywhere. So where do you go from here? Well, that's the ultimate question, isn't it, Phyllis? Everyone asks, where where do we go next and what do we do next? And I, I'm really hoping that the book that the Transparency Project is 
is producing will help answer some of those questions. I mean, it may not be the 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 go-to resource, but I think it's going to put a lot of information out there that everyone's willing to share and what worked and what didn't work so that people in your situation can can uh, kind of come to their own conclusions on what they should be doing with their cases. Yeah, because there's just so many. I mean, just like Lisa with Michael Sanchez, Bonnie Stewart, you know, with her son Justin, um, Nikki Ledoux, all of these are so many that the same, you know, a lot of the same corner, the same police department, the same Mississippi area are all involved, or you have the information, you know who the killer is, you have all of that information but cannot seem to get anything done. And it's sad. It's sad when you know who the killer is, you know where he is, you know that the police know, and the police have told you they more or less know but you still cannot, you've go to the, I went to the D, to the district attorney's office. They tell me unless they're invited in by Gulfport Police, they can't do anything. Kenneth Maines with Investigative Cold Case Society, he agreed to take my case pro bono. They will not invite him in. They told me they don't invite people in for outside help. So, you know, you get people that are willing to come forward and help, but by law, even the FBI told me, they have to be invited in. Well, the corruption is within the Gulfport Police Department, and it's not just me saying so. It's on all the blog stations. It's on everything. Even the FBI had noted them to be the most corrupt. So they're not going to ever invite someone in voluntarily. And I'll probably be dead uh, in know, Go hey, ahead, Denny. Phyllis, uh, this, this is... Uh, this whole thing goes back to the transparency issue, I think. Uh, we've got governmental agencies, be they police or in some cases a coroner's office or a medical examiner's office, that withhold information from the public and, and the families. And in most cases, in most states, when they do that, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. There's no provision for appeal and if if you just start calling as you have done you know going uh, agency to agency yes. you have corruption to deal with in some states possibly you know in your situation you have other cases where the uh, agency is protecting possibly protecting some some type of incompetence on uh, on their part and they they don't want it disclosed and there's political correctness involved that, you know, a state agency says, oh, no, you know, it doesn't, uh, we got to keep a good relationship with the county sheriff, so we're not going to jump in and uh, and intervene in a case unless they invite us in. So even though that state agency has jurisdiction, uh, you know, in the county, they have jurisdiction statewide, they won't come in, not because they're prohibited by law, but because of political correctness, they don't they don't want oh, to get a, a turf war going. So there's all these issues to deal with, and they vary from case to case and state to state. And I'm almost thinking that perhaps uh, the way to go is if we uh, you know can get the momentum and the interest 
is maybe try to get some type of state or excuse me federal legislation requiring requiring certain things in in uh, in these cases. I don't know if that's realistic or not, but uh, there there has well, to be some answer. You know, you're right because you've got to go somewhere. And after so many years, like they say, you know, time is of essence in all of this, and crucial information is destroyed and it's lost. But there's nothing you can do if you cannot. You, you can call. You can be nice. You can be ugly. You know, I never wanted to get on Facebook <laughs> or have public knowledge to throw my family's garbage out here for everyone to hash over. And some have good, nice opinions. Some have ugly opinions. I've never wanted to be verbally confrontation with any law enforcement whatsoever. I respect all of them. And as my mom always said, you know, you keep your family straight and stay out of trouble. You don't have to worry about issues with the law. Well, you know, this is something that I did not do. This is something that was thrown to me through the death of my brother and my father. But yes, every inch of evidence proves they were murdered. We know who murdered them. We, we know how they were murdered to a certain extent. But like you say, there's nothing. I don't know where else or what else to do, Denny. Delilah, do you have any thoughts on that? Not really. My mind is just boggled by all of this. And I, I just, you know, I commend you, Phyllis, for, for having the ten- tenacity to hold on to this for this many years and to not give up and to continue fighting for justice for your father and your brother. Um, it shouldn't have to be this way. It, it's no, just, should not. It just shouldn't have to be. And again, there's just very little respect for the feelings and the, the rights of the surviving victims. And, and you're a case in point of the fact that all you want are answers. All you want are answers to your questions that are the truth. The truth lies out there somewhere in between all the lies that you've been told and all the corruption that you had to run up against. And it's and maybe just... some of mine may help. You know, that's right, Delilah, maybe some because the corruption and, you know, the corruption is so evident there because on the, uh, and I have to say my personal opinion and alleged due to legal aspects of it, but the guy that is alleged to have killed my brother my father finally pointed him out. I knew who he was all these years. I was sent a six-man lineup in 2013, and a, a, I guess you could say a credible, nice, honest investigator. He read the file. He said, let me get the file. He came back. He said, I am 99.99% or 9% sure your brother was murdered by a member of the Dixie Mafia. He sent a six-man lineup. I positively identified the guy, told him the name. From that point on, once they found out who my father was and he was a lieutenant with the Gulfport Police Department, it went downhill. He was reprimanded for telling me uh, who the guy was and about it. No one has come forward. The chief of police told me that I was wrong, that the guy that I said was, I won't use his name, but that pointed out, said, no, that's not him. I have another guy that came in. But I had people on Facebook that said, yes, we know him. Yes, we're from Mississippi area. Yes, he was involved with the Dixie Mafia. That is the real person that you were naming. So they all knew more than one, not just one, but more than one have come forward. So why did this Gulfport police chief feel the, our police uh, 
the best guy to feel the need to lie and tell me, no, that's not him. He is still covering it up, even though we know the truth and know who the person is. Uh, you know, Phyllis, what, what, I, I don't want to get into politics here. I just want to say that what's going on today in uh, on the federal level with this the Russia gate or whatever investigation you have the department of justice and you have congressional committees attempting to get access to records regarding all this stuff. And now the congressional committees have the responsibility for oversight of, of the department of justice, the FBI, they have subpoena power. They've subpoenaed the records, and they still can't get them. So it, it really is, is sad to think about that. If, if they can't do it with the legal oversight responsibility and with subpoena power, and they've subpoenaed these records and can't get them, you know, how does the average Joe, uh, the people, common yeah. people like you and me, what the hell chance do we have? It, it's really scary to me, and uh, again, I don't want to get into the political side sure. of this, but just, but just the similarities to trying to get information out of the government. That it's it's really an incredible thing, uh, and and when you see that they can't do it, the congressional committees can't get the information, can't get the records or access to see them. Uh, it, it's really scary, and it. Uh, it really is. Uh, it, yeah, it makes you wonder what chance do I have confronting the government. And it's really, uh, you know, something to think about. Well, I do not want to hog the whole show, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to stay on air and I'm going to listen and all, but I hope some other, you know, callers will call in or either, you know, you three have there, you, Delilah, and Dee have some great information I'm sure to put out. But just to say, I'm not giving up, I'm not going away, and I'm going to keep contacting to hopefully one day, sooner or later, something will come up. At least not now, on God my bless you, Phyllis. help someone else. God bless you, Phyllis. Oh, thank you, Danny. Thanks, Phyllis. Okay. Yes, thanks for the call. Uh, Dee, before we wrap up here, I just wanted to mention, too, uh, I strongly encourage anybody in the situation, uh, well, Phyllis has pretty much exhausted, already contacted the various uh, places, but uh, on the Resources for Survivors page, there is uh, uh, five or six organizations that may be of help to people bucking the system or confronting the system. Uh, there are advocacy groups, uh, and I strongly suggest you go to that page, resourcesforsurvivors.com, and check and see if any of the listed organizations may be of help to you in, uh, you know, in intervening on your behalf, possibly with the police agency or whatever. Um, and and you know if if they can't help you, you haven't lost anything, but at least you've tried and you ruled it out. So 
And if they can help you, then obviously so much the better. So again, resourcesforsurvivors.com, and on the first page, uh, uh, you will find a these listings with contact information and links and so forth to uh, to check them out. So I strongly encourage that because if you don't try, you'll never know. So uh, uh, I guess we can uh, kind of wrap up with that little piece of information. Sounds good, Jenny. You have anything to add? It's been an interesting conversation, and I think um, I think listeners will benefit greatly. Um, now and in the future, because I think we've we've given a lot of information out there for people to use, and and hopefully it's all it's all good for everyone. Absolutely, Dee. And listen, uh, it was really a, a nice chat we had, and uh, I certainly thank Phyllis for her for her call. And we should do it more our often. Our next broadcast. <laughs> absolutely, it was fun, fun, and hopefully informative. Uh, our next yeah. broadcast will be on June 5th when we'll talk about the death of Don DJ Ficky. Please join us at that time. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.